HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. As the news of coronavirus reverberates throughout the world, we at HRN are especially concerned about how coronavirus will impact our food system. We will use our platform to support the restaurant, agriculture, hospitality, and other food-related industries by maintaining our coverage and operations. As social distancing becomes the temporary norm, podcasts are more important than ever. There's never been a more crucial time to stay informed about the state of our food system and the way that food connects our global community. We're sharing all of our COVID-19 coverage at heritageradionetwork.org slash COVID-19. From interviews with nonprofit leaders and journalists, to firsthand accounts from chefs and restaurant owners, to reports on how the crisis is affecting regional farms. Our team is working remotely from all over to keep food radio alive. HRN needs your support more than ever to keep sharing essential stories and resources with our listeners. Make a donation of any amount. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Welcome to Food Without Borders, a show about food, politics, and identity. I'm your host, Sari Kamen and you're listening to heritageradionetwork.org. In light of the novel coronavirus pandemic, Food Without Borders is airing At the Table, a special interview series with journalists, chefs, farmers, activists, and business owners navigating the impact of COVID-19 on the food and beverage industry. This series was originally recorded for MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. If you'd like to watch the online video version of these interviews, please visit www.mofad.org backslash online dash video dash series. Thank you so much for listening. Hey everyone, welcome to At The Table. I am here today with Ashton Berry uh, in New Orleans. <laughs> um, Ashton is a sommelier. She's an award-winning mixologist. She's a hospitality activist. She's a co-founder of Radical Exchange. Ashton, I'm so happy to be speaking with you today. Hello, everybody. Hey. Um, so Ashton, why don't you just kick it off and tell us a little bit about um, you know, who you are, the kind of work you were doing maybe before COVID, how that's shifted, what you're working on right now. Yeah. Um, so before this, I was working 
well, I was working with Radical Exchange, which is my company, and we were working on Resistance Serve, our conference that we, our annual conference, and we had just gotten out of that, um, and we're preparing for actually our next frontward facing events, um, which now have been put on hold for how long, who knows. Um, and then I also work as a consultant and a lot of my work works with businesses. Um, mostly, I would say in this past year, very interesting. It's been mostly um, smaller tech startups and uh, restaurants and really just helping them with their operational models um, in a way that instills harm reduction. So how can we be empathetic to people's needs? Um, how can we prevent things before they escalate as in, as in terms of sexual violence, racial violence, gender violence, all of those things? How do we set up processes um, to prevent any of those things happening within the business? Um, and I also have created a couple, couple of curriculums for businesses. So that was kind of what I was doing before and it's still what I'm doing now. Um, I'm, you know, I'm still consulting and, um, I'm thankful that my I've been able to shift and still be able to do a lot of my work, even though we are in isolation. Um, yeah, and I'm mostly known just for you know presenting a lot of new material, or maybe if it's not if people have heard of it, new in the way it's being presented, material on the hospitality industry. Yeah. I would say just new in the way um, that you use language as a tool. You know, I, I attended your conference resistance serve this, this past year, which was amazing. And just the way you spoke and just the way you had these tools. Um, and that was like, you know, you're a way of kind of creating an infrastructure, you know, before things even got started, I was like, Oh wow. Like she's using words and language in a way that's like creating a system for me and for us all to be able to communicate in a way yeah. that's really, really I safe. Really that. I really believe in um, systems that help us communicate better. Like I, communication is, we assume that people, because we all speak the same language, that we all come from the same communication pattern and that's just not true. Um, and so it's when we create a system in a space, it just allows people to navigate communicating with each other. And then, easier way and without um and without as m much conflict because i think when breakdowns happen it generally is communication and people don't realize that um in the moment right so um just you know creating an infrastructure where people can communicate better and therefore enjoy each other more and also be able to prepare themselves more for kind of whatever that re interpersonal relationship is yeah I also really appreciated the way that right away you were like, confrontation isn't bad. You know, it's, it's, it's what happens next is, is the part that matters. It, it's very, yes, confrontation is not bad. We, you know, I was, I was saying um, in a story yesterday how um, we've gotten to a place where we are really risk adverse in society and we consider conflict to be a, huge risk without assessing if it really is if the conflict will do harm we we immediately conflict conflict with abuse or harm and that's not necessarily true conflict it is can be an opportunity actually for transformation and actually to transform or transmute anything there must be a rupture or some type of tension or conflict. So when people say they want change, I'm like, well, it requires the tension of having conflict. Like it, that's a necessary step. Um, but I think 
we've been, it's been conflict is so negatively talked about that immediately anytime we come up on the bridge of it, we um, navigate in ways to mitigate it rather than trying to say how it was the most helpful way we can engage in this conflict that needs to happen, right? Without doing it, without doing harm or mitigating, right? Any unintentional harm so that we can move forward. Right, yes. Um, so I guess speaking of tension, you've created an initiative called America's Table, which kind of reimagines what the hospitality industry can and should look like. Um, yeah. No longer yeah. quarantining and restaurants can potentially reopen. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I don't know if we're quite at the process of reimagining industry, but what we are trying to do is make sure that people are visible. Right now, I think one of the biggest issues with all of the language and the way things are being presented is that everything is heavily focused on a top-down structure. All of the, most of the stories we're hearing are from chefs and predominantly chefs in fine dining or predominantly chefs who are men or predominantly chefs who are white in men or just predominantly chefs who are white, right? Um, and the only time we are hearing from people who may be in entry-level positions is when we are essentially supporting trauma porn, right? Um, it's, the, you know, they're only being put in the spotlight to have their voices heard in terms of telling their story of overcoming or how difficult this time is being. And I'm not saying that stories of the difficulties people are facing are not essential to paint the picture for people who are in our industry. Um, but when that, when you consistently tell a story of one group of people leading and continue to tell a story of another group of people, which is hardship, what you do is you position both of these people as isolated uh, identities of who are only people capable of create of creating one thing or the other. Um, and so America's Table is just really focused on laborers and making sure that they're visible and making sure that their their voices are visible um not just within our industry but outside of our industry um the stories that we should be hearing more of is you know it what does a server think our industry should look like after coronavirus what what would make them feel safe in their position after coronavirus so yeah, we're really focused on that. And right now, what we do know is that the stimulus package has passed. It's already been lobbied for, um, as suspected. And I said this on our first uh, conversation, which ended up not being able to be posted. But um, I stated that, one minute, I'm going to wait one minute. We might have to edit it just because it said internet connection unstable. Oh, okay. Um, um, I, well, you know, what we said what I said in the first conversation we had was that I think that people are expecting something that we're not going to get, which is that I was already woefully aware that small independent restaurants would not be getting access to that stimulus bill. And not because I was like a Debbie Downer, but because history shows us that, like history shows us legislatively that when these packages are created, they're created through lobbying, right? And the people, and right now, the biggest lobbying for the industry is the National Restaurant Association, um, which is led by people who formerly worked for these conglomerate corporate corporations. So that is who is going to get the money. And the idea, and part of that is also because they also hold the key to data. 
Um, and I don't think many people in, within our industry are having that conversation enough, nor realizing enough, but data is really, really important to telling stories. And so when we're shifting to our second action point at America's Table, which is to create a program that focuses on collecting data. Uh, we're calling it a hospitality census. So just like the national census, it is looking to document people so that we can make sure that they're properly represented. But right now, if you look, if you tried to research, even if you were to buy some of the, um, the research from these marketing institutions, there is very little information about the hospitality, about hospitality laborers. And that's a problem. That's, that's, that's a huge problem. Of course. I mean, right. Of course it is. But it's because people don't matter. Corporations yeah, matter. Right. We think we see those people as being disposable. But yeah. right now, what we're learning is that they're essential workers. Right. So, um, yeah. And that language is so interesting. You know, the word essential that, you know, it's like we finally have an awareness of that the people are actually the backbone of the entire industry. So how do we shift in order to sort of... Um, not not only do we call them essential workers, we treat them as essential workers. Yes, and I think the issue right now is that I'm afraid that what we're going to do, which is the typical kind of perform performative society action that America does, which is we're going to clap really loud for them and say how amazing they are. We're going to give some people some awards and then completely overlook actually changing the structural system that makes businesses, right. th that allows businesses to treat them as if they're disposable. Right. Um, and this is why we are so concerned and think it's so important to have the hospitality senses because we need to be able to state, here's who's working in these businesses, here's how they need to be supported. Um, we also need to just really lay a foundation to begin to get more um, data from our industry workers. Like we need, we need to be collecting more data on our industry um, and it needs to be a priority. And so, you know, after looking at all of the relief efforts that were going on and that's not really, we don't see that as our lane. What we see as our lane is being a network and collecting information. And um, that's, we're hoping that this first hospitality census will lay a foundation to continue to have them. Yeah. Um, I want to shift gears just slightly because you wrote something on Instagram that was so powerful. Um, you wrote the, the systemic killing of black and brown people is a hospitality issue. And all of those reasons are tied to inequity and COVID-19 is only exacerbating it. So, so, so what do you see as being the intersections of the agricultural system, the prison system, and then the, yeah. and then the hospitality? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think people never make this kind of alignment, but I, it's been in my head for years and I can't let it go, but no. it's, um, and it's really that our agricultural system um, is something that we, our food system is something that we've been talking about. The the corporatizing of our agricultural system has been the main thing that has been damaging its workers, but also the way that we eat in this country, right? Moving things from the independent farmers and forcing them, because it isn't like these independent farmers really had a choice. They were forced into being cooperatized and working in really what is basically share cropper terms. Right. essentially right it, and that's it, where you draw the thread to slavery and this is where you draw the thing but not only that it's not only is it tied to sharecropping it's tied to 1865 labor laws which are a response to the emancipation emancipation of slaves right so 
when you know that, you're like, oh, wait, 1865 labor laws helped create the foundation for why our agricultural system legislatively has started to look at that and all of the legislation that has begun to be built off of it. When you know that and you start to look at the other labor laws that were built in at that time, you also see that that's how our bail system was created. Our bell system was created by 1865 labor laws, uh, labor laws. And so then when you look at that, you also see employment contracts for domestic labor, which domestic labor is the first hospitality labor, because we have to remember 1865, restaurants still weren't a mass thing, right? Most of the people who worked in the food industry were domestic laborers because they worked as caterers. So they worked within people's homes and within their establishments. Um, and so these employee contracts were really detrimental because they helped set up the tipping system. Mm. They allow, so I, I draw that thread one legally because it's important for people to know where things come from. But I'm also drawing the line because we, we, we now have a term, we talk about the industrial um, prison complex. We also talk about the, the agricultural um, complex, right? Like these are two things that are talked about, but we never talk about hospitality. And primarily that's because it's something that's supposed to be joyful, right? And because the labor of it has been invisible for so long. We can track in agriculture the first time America invited Mexican workers who were undocumented to come over here and work because they had lost the, their predominant labor force through because of the emancipation of former slaves, right? So it, it, you, we can track all of those things and see in agriculture where those systems of using labor for cheap and making them disposal has come from. We can see where the bells are stuck. But hospitality, the labor has always been invisible. And I think one of the best examples that ever came to my mind is um, on the on the podcast still processing, uh, Jenny talks about visiting Thomas Jefferson's home, and and they walk into the dining room, and this is actually was not uncommon if you were at a certain level of in government or prestige. Um, they walk into his dining room, and the she states that the host, the tour guide, says to them, "Does anybody know anything?" And everybody's like, "No." And he goes, "Oh, well, there's all trap doors." He had built his dining room with trap doors and all of these things so that people wouldn't see his slaves placing food on the table. It's the the term, you know, you're supposed to be, uh, you you aren't supposed to, you're seen, not heard. Right. Is like it, it comes from somewhere like the idea that the best service you can have is that when you don't even notice the waiter is there. Right, like right. that comes from something like that's not that that's not just made up. It didn't just come out of thin air. And predominantly because the people who were serving were black and brown people yeah. or immigrants who weren't yet considered white at this point. And so we it's really important that we connect all those things. Sorry, I, Anybody who's watching this, I'm not being the most eloquent right now, but I think it's really important that people understand that all of these systems are systemic. Um, and the issues that we have in hospitality are systemic. They aren't new. People keep talking about them as if they're new. They're not new. They've been here. Um, and oppression always is malleable and shifts and change during the times. It may look different than it looked 200 years ago, but it's the same. Yeah, I'm guessing it's no coincidence either that we have front of house, back of house. Yeah, all of that. All black and brown undocumented workers in the back, like peeling carrots with the like, you know, white matri oh. at the front. Yeah, all of that. And one of the things that we haven't, that we don't have, um, 
kind of written and, you know, down is we have told this story about America, about the hospitality industry, as if the hospitality industry has been the same in every region. It has grown the same in every region. We've kind of told this story in terms of talking about service, and that's absolutely not the truth, right? The truth of the matter is that the East Coast and the way that it grew looks very different from the South like very different, which looks very different from the Midwest, which looks incredibly different from the West Coast, right? And so in, in terms of who was disposable and working those roles, right? We have to talk about Chinese immigrants. We have to talk about the Irish, right? In the, on the East Coast. And what did that look like in pubs and taverns and things of that nature? Like it's systemic because segregation was a thing. It's systemic because redlining was a thing. It, it's systemic because there are literal laws that kept people from entering buildings of different races. So we know that our industry did not grow the same in every region. So we have to be able to have those conversations and how those systemic things on the macro level have impacted our industry. Right. Um, you have been very vocal about pointing out, you know, the obvious disconnect between the fact that such a disproportionate number of black and brown people are dying from COVID and not only the response from our political leaders and both on the federal and state level, but also the hospitality sector. Yeah. Um, it's been really disappointing and I can hold the space to say that it's been really disappointing and also hold the space to say that I don't think it's intentional. Mm. But, you know, intentionality doesn't void harm, right? Like the lack of being intentional, does, you know, of intentionally trying to hurt somebody doesn't mean that you still can't do harm. Um, and so the very big issue that I'm having is the way stories are being told, who is telling them specifically in food and drinks media, but also just the lack of acknowledgement and conversation that Black people are dying. Black people are dying at a disproportionate rate. And not just indigenous people are dying at a disproportionate rate. Food ways in America are rooted in black people. What like we we have to have this conversation. We have to have this conversation. And I am really disturbed with the way that packaging in media has not shifted during this. A lot of the is really concerned with maintaining communication to a certain specific consumer and is not, and again, I don't think it's intentional. I think that food and drinks media is predominantly white, almost the 5% white. And now is it 90% white, it's predominantly led by people who are middle and upper class. And I think when that happens, you, it's not because people aren't really trying to exclude people. It means that these aren't people that their community or close relationship with. So every time they do call on a person of color or do call on a woman or do call somebody, they call the people who are within their network. And that's also problematic because that means you are only call, only calling on the people you are in close proximity to. And also it leads to the feelings of tokenization. Yeah. And there's, and we have a huge tokenization problem in food media and that shows right now. I mean, you know, one of the biggest, and I don't know if I can say this on here, but I'm completely, completely not surprised, but utterly appalled disgusted with the fact that Gabrielle Hamilton was given space to write an article in the New York times. Yeah. Right. We can't say that 
Eve survivors, that we support survivors and then turn around and support a woman who was more than comfortable supporting a man who had been named as a predator. And also I'm sick of people saying, well, people make mistakes. No, no, no. A mistake is I stepped on your foot. That was an accident. I'm sorry. Getting into a business decision when multiple people have critiqued you and told you it's harmful and choosing to do it anyway is not a mistake. So, so I just want, I want to hear your opinion. Like, how do you acknowledge that, you know, there is a a place for chefs who are lamenting their restaurant, um, who have, who have insight into what it's like to shut down, you know, a restaurant that you has essentially been your life for 20 years and acknowledging that this person has had this experience and is, you know, whatever, has a voice, has, is a great writer, but also has you know, done, done certain things that has, has taken away from them the ability to, to represent a certain population of people. I mean, that should have been mentioned in, in their article. They should have talked about accountability looks like owning how you've done harm. Mm. That is what should have happened. Gabrielle Hamilton should have wrote that article and should have also wrote. And I realize for many people, people will not be able to grieve for me. They will not have empathy for me because of my past mistakes. And I have to live with the fact that while I have been a great chef, while I have been someone who has been in community this way, I have not been in community this way. Right. You, you have to, you have to be able to have duality. Exactly. You have to be able to have duality. My issue is when we put people in, in spaces like the New York Times, which are highly praised without any critique. And, and you know, my biggest thing is that we look at critique the same way that we look at conflict. Critiquing someone means that they haven't done any good. No, it, it doesn't mean that. It's the tension. It's, it's, it's the, the fear tension. of the tension. It's the fear of the tension. It doesn't mean that it's we're like saying that they haven't risk. done any yeah. good. And this, and this is that binary, that logical fallacy that people love to buy into, that you are either good or you are bad. And like, mm-hmm. honestly, white supremacy is built off of that notion. Mm-hmm. You're either good or you're bad. I'm not a racist because I'm a good person, or I'm not a sexist because I'm a good person. When actually, the conversation we're having isn't about your morality, mm-hmm. right? Like, Imagine has a great quote where she talks about, if a human does something really awful is a mass murder and everything like that. I cannot divorce myself from that person. I cannot call that person a monster to dehumanize them because it separates me and gives me the safety of feeling as if I am not them. If a human is capable of it, it therefore means that I am capable of it, which means that I understand what it means to be a human, which is the spectrum and capacity to be on either end of the spectrum what it means to be alive (laughs) that's not her exact quote by the way i'm just paraphrasing but i think i i think that you know i think that there is to let chefs speak i think it's about opening up the voices how many times are we going to hear from the same three or four people right how many times are we going to go to the same places and this is a conversation about limited networks you are calling on these people because your network is limited. You don't know people outside of this sphere. And that's a conversation about where you need to grow and where you need to do the work. Yeah. And um, who's responsible yeah. for making those changes? Is it the individuals? Is it the, is it the, the media corporations? I think it's both. I think, you know, I, so often people DM me on Instagram or email me and they're like, you know, I really want to do 
like I really want to make a change. I want to do work. I really, first of all, there are no seismic changes. No one person is going to come somewhere and suddenly shift from here to here. And, and you can give me all the um, examples. No person has ever done that. MLK didn't do that by himself. He had Bayard Rustin and he had everybody else behind him doing that shift. And it was a whole movement of people working at that time, even though we remember him. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's it's there's no one person will make a seismic change. You can only do the work if you choose to do the work internally. And that's the work that people are missing out on. And that is where we fall into issues of saviorhood. When we are looking to heal, help, project what we want for people who are in need rather than working on ourselves and asking them what they are in need of. Mm-hmm. And how they can be supportive. And sometimes the best way you can be supportive is being quiet, not doing nothing. That's something I learned at Resistance Search. I mean, sometimes it is. Sometimes the best way you can help is being like, my voice isn't needed here. Yeah. That's, that's not helpful. Yeah. Right? There's a lot of issues that I see that I... I'm like, oh my God, this is and this that I don't speak on publicly or on Instagram. Why? Because that's not my space. Yeah. I'm not being helpful. Those people don't need me to be another person examining, contributing information on this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there is a place to lament. What I would love to see is just more nuanced conversation. Like, where, give me the depth. Let's go past the shallow level of you love a restaurant. Let's get into the deeper nitty nitty. You lost your restaurant. How was your restaurant operating before this? Right. Where were you? Were were you guys financially safe? Were you secure? Where were you? Also, where are the questions about all these GoFundMe's? There's no criticism. Like, are these employees actually getting this money? Yeah, yeah. Because I've heard from many people that they've seen like this much and, and you're talking about a business that has 20 employees and, and they're like, I got $200, but we raised it. Right. Where's it going? <laughs> Where's the money going? Yeah. Right. Accountability. So, accountability is really important. Transparency is really important. But I think the biggest issues in terms of what's happening, in terms of how things are being written about, is so many of the same people who are choosing the direction and what is being written are also friends and have personal relationships wrapped up and personal connections wrapped up in what they're doing. And that's problematic. If you can't objectively state, yes, this person is my friend. Also, we have a journalistic duty to write something. So, yeah, that's my thought on that. I'm going forever. No, that's good. Thank you. Um, What you just said made me think of two things. Um, One, you quickly mentioned grief. And um, I wanted you to, I wanted to hear you talk about it a little bit because you talked about your own experience with grief and how you finally gave yourself permission to just kind of, um, you know, stop, stop fighting it and just let it, let yourself yes. into that space. You know, a lot of people are experiencing what we call second, uh, secondhand grief. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people are, are also losing people in space of firsthand grief on many, many levels. You know, it's really interesting because in other languages and cultures, there's multiple words for grief and there's like multiple ways to describe grief. But in America, we don't really have a system or process or acknowledgement of grief unless someone dies. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's very formal, but um, grief is thing that 
I personally have been going through because I had a lot of deaths just in my life in the past year. Um, and they kind of all happened within a six month period back to back to back to back. It, it, they kept rolling. And so I really had to learn how to one, you're just gonna have to sit with it. And some people will think you should be over it or, you know, why is she still so upset about this? And, you know, that's, it's really not your job to decipher or unpack how people feel about the process you're going through to heal, one. And two, it's important to remember that grief isn't stagnant. It's not this pinpoint that you move away from, right? Grief lives inside of you. Um, and so, and the thing about grief is that if you don't heal it, it will show up in your body in physical ways. It will literally begin to make you sick. Research has shown this. And so, um, what happens when we have secondary grief and just to explain to everybody what that's kind of like is when, um, for instance, school shootings can trigger grief in people even if they didn't know anybody in it even if they weren't even in the same city it can trigger second grief so secondary grief um is when you weren't necessarily connected to person or the place or the incident that happened so a great example is like a speech. um and a lot of times people exhibit anger but that anger is also connected to grief right of once again losing something, even if you're not connected to it, right? Your 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 mind, your your spirit, your body, however you want to put it, is reckoning loss, right? Of some, um, and so it's important to discuss this because all of these restaurants closing, a lot of people, especially the people whose value is tied to their job, are experiencing grief, yeah. right? Um, and it, people may think it's silly to grieve something, but it's, it actually makes sense. And I actually talked about this. I talked about post-event depression, mm -hmm. um, which happens a lot of time within our industry, which is that you've put your energy into something for so long, the event happens and afterwards it was, it was a success and you're like, yeah. but instead of like, yeah, you feel this really, really low. And it's because our body has something which, um, Lisa talks about, in her book, How Emotions Are Made, our body has something called body budgets, yeah. which means our body budgets for a certain amount of energy, as you would say, or input into certain things. And so when we sap that body budget to put it into one thing and then suddenly it's over, our body, it has to recover, right? And it feels yeah. like loss. It it, feels it's probably the sim a similar experience for, you know, a woman who's given birth and then experiences depression. Holding something for so long, your energy has been focused on something for so long. And then all of a sudden here comes this huge deficit, right? And it impacts you. Um, and so secondary grief is another thing that impacts your body budget, right? Like you suddenly it triggers and it also triggers all those other moments of grief because our brain works on concepts. So when you think of happy, like if you think of a happy moment, have you ever noticed you'll think of a happy moment and you think of another and you just get happier and happier? Yeah. Same thing happens when we get sad. Right. You think of one sad moment and then you can think of other sad things and you spiral, mm -hmm. right? And you spiral. It's the same thing. And so I wrote that post about grief because, um, I woke up feeling great and feeling really good and, um, you know, thought it was going to be a super productive week. I'm going to 
I'm going to, I've been doing so well all week. I'm just going to round it out and finish it. And, you know, I happened to open a piece of mail that I didn't see in my mailbox that was kind of stuck. And it was a letter from my cousin and a picture of my grandmother who had passed. And, you know, it's suddenly this day where I was ready to hit it head on. It just felt like all I wanted to do was climb back in my bed and I tried to send an email and I'd be working on the email for an hour and then it, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't get sent and then I would shame myself because why is it taking me this long to write this email and wait, I have a call to prepare for, wait, I have a good, you know. And then finally, I just said after I got done my last call, you, well, what is so important that you can't take care of yourself right now? What is so important that has to be done right this instant that it trumps your mental, like you being mentally healthy, right? It's okay to just sit for a moment or a day or two days or a week or two weeks or a month and say, this is all I can give. I don't really have the capacity to give more. Like, um, and so I think a lot of times we don't give permission to ourselves to do that. Um, and it's also okay to say, Hey, I'm really sad today and not have a reason and not exactly know the reason we're so not used to being, we're also not used to naming that we're going through grief. So sometimes you won't always know where, where it's coming from and that's okay too. I'm really sad today. I'm not sure why, but I'm sad. I'm really sad. And it's really hard to do, to do anything today. Um, and so I wrote that post because I was like, I hope this frees someone. I hope this frees someone to know that as productive or whatever you think somebody else is, we're all kind of facing our own struggles. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. And I, I think we should wrap up by hearing, you know, what, what you do when you give yourself permission to just take care of yourself. What are, what are your um, It depends on, sometimes I go for a walk right? Uh, walking is very therapeutic, gets your body moving too. Um, sometimes I read, right? Uh, just having the destruction of reading something specifically for me, sci-fi or fiction, where I can go to another world and kind of just get some space between my head and, and, and what's going on in the world. Um, sometimes, you know, rituals are really important. Grounding yourself back in your body, right? Like, Grinding yourself in your body isn't just for when you are going through an emotive triggered response, right? It's also for when you can feel yourself trying to disassociate from what you're feeling. So like having rituals to ground yourself is really important. And for me, it's skincare, right? I go wash my face, I right? And doing that lets my body know, okay, we're going through this process. We're doing this. We can unclench our jaw. We can lower our shoulder. We can take deeper breaths, right? We're okay. We, we are doing this process to remind ourselves on every level that we're, we're okay when we be okay. Um, sometimes it's making myself something. Sometimes it's just eating french fries. Sometimes <laughs> it's like, I'm going to eat french fries. You know, one thing I have to do, though, is drink. And I think that a lot of people, when they've had a hard day, are like, I want to drink. And sometimes even I do that. But I really have been trying to challenge myself on asking myself, why am I grabbing a drink right now? Mm. 
right? Why am I grabbing a drink right now? Um, You know, bad habits aren't generally intentional. We don't generally say, we don't generally say, I really want to have this bad habit, right? Like, (laughs) I really want to have this bad coping mechanism. We don't generally do that, right? But they happen because we go to the thing that most easily allows us to disassociate. Yeah. Um, and alcohol is also depressant. And so I know a lot of people are drinking during this time, but really asking yourself every day, why am I drinking? Why do I feel the need to drink? Is there something else that I can do? What What is drinking doing for me or making me feel that I feel like it's necessary in this moment? And if it's escapism, escapism is fine sometimes. But if it's always your go-to, then you got to question it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Um, well, thank you, Ashton, so much for all of that. Tell us where we can, you know, find America's Table and, and just keep up with yes. all America's Table dot org, not dot com. We also are buying the site for Unite America's Table, so they'll redirect to the same place. Mm-hmm. Um, we our Instagram starts this week. We got Instagram, um, Unite America's Table, um, and. Yeah, those are the places you can find us. And you can find my page at The Collectress, C-O-L-L-E-C-T-R-E-S-S. Yeah. And I would say, you know, kind of touching on what you said before, anyone who's kind of, you know, looking for you to, to solve and come up with all the answers and they want to they wanna change and they want things to happen, um, a really good way to start making small changes in yourself is just to follow Ashton. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's putting a lot of pressure <laughs> <laughs> I think I can say that from personal experience. It's like I feel I feel challenged every time I read your writing, and it makes me think about things in a way that you know I don't usually get confronted with. And I'm so 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 grateful for that. So thank you. I appreciate that affirmation. Yeah, I mean, I try, I try, and all of the things I challenge people on, the things that I challenge myself on, right? Yeah. Like, no, I know you own that. They're, they're not things that I'm like. This is just for you. It's like, no, I had to sit with this too. <laughs> sit right. with this too, like. I'm asking you to sit with it as well. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Ashton. All right. Stay safe. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. This program is powered by Simplecast.